0: In the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Mary, we ask for your intercession and your prayers this afternoon as we pray. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. It's a reading from the gospel according to Luke. Jesus told them a parable. There was a rich man whose land produced a bountiful harvest. He asked himself, what shall I do? For I do not have space to store my harvest. And he said, this is what I shall do. I shall tear down my barns and build larger ones. There I shall store all my grain and other goods, and I shall say to myself, Now as for you, you have so many good things stored up for many years. Rest, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, You fool, this night your life will be demanded of you, and the things you have prepared, to whom will they belong? Thus it will be for the one who stores up treasure for himself, but is not rich in what matters to God. Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. A few years ago, there was a major golf tournament happening in Canada. And one of the golfers who was in the lead was just literally a few holes away from winning this major tournament. And with that would come, you know, a couple million dollars probably, notoriety and popularity and all that would go with winning a major golf tournament. And all of a sudden, as he's just literally a few holes away from winning, his agent comes running to him from afar with a cell phone in his hand. And he's holding the cell phone up in the air. And so this golfer takes the phone call in the middle of this tournament. And literally about 10, 15 seconds later, all of a sudden, this golfer and his agent literally drop everything and take off for the parking lot. And they get in their car and they sped off. On the phone was his wife, who was on her way to the hospital because their baby decided to come two weeks early. So she had called him saying, you might want to get here. (laughs) We're having our baby now. And so this golfer takes off in the car and he made it in time to the hospital to be with his wife she delivered their baby girl. Such a beautiful story. I love that story. And I think the reason why I love that story so much is because this man, this athlete, was passionate about what really mattered in life. Isn't it beautiful to hear a story of an athlete who, in a sense, turns his back on everything for something more important, you know? And this... This story of that that man is beautiful because he literally did turn his back on fame, on riches, notoriety, popularity. All things that in the end really don't matter, at least that much. The parable of the rich fool, which I read, is a profound parable for us because it helps to, to, ask, to answer the question, what is our purpose in life? You know, this morning we talked about our identity. Who are we? You know, we are children of God. We are not the things we do, the thing, how much money we make, any of those things. But that we belong to God. And so what then is our purpose? How do we live? I think this parable of the rich fool, the way it helps us, is that it helps us to order our priorities. It helps us to order our life. You know, what's the parable? Jesus tells this story about a man who is greatly uh, blessed. And he has so much surplus, so much wealth, that he has to tear down these barns and build bigger ones. And all of a sudden he gets all of this, he has all this wealth stored up for him. And what does he do? Sort of sits down on his couch, kicks his feet up, and says, oh, I don't have anything to worry about. You know, rest, eat, drink, and be merry. Well, the ironic thing is, that very night, this man dies. And he comes before God without any of those things. And Jesus ends the parable in a very serious tone. He says, so it is, for he... Who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. You know, this parable, but really like all the parables, and like the whole gospel, it should make us a bit uncomfortable. You know, if we just hear the gospel being read, and especially this parable, we're just like, huh, eh, yeah, no big deal. It probably means we're not paying attention. Dorothy Day once said, She said, Jesus has come to comfort the afflicted and to afflict the comfortable. (laughs) And it's true, the gospel is very demanding. And it's not demanding in a rude or aggressive way, but it's demanding because Jesus wants our hearts. He wants the whole thing, not just a little bit, not just even half, but our whole heart. I think before we talk about what this parable is saying, I think it's important to begin by saying what it's not saying. Because we can really interpret this, I think, the wrong way and kind of miss the bigger point that Jesus wants to teach us. For one, Jesus is not telling us that we shouldn't invest our money, that we shouldn't plan for the future. You know, that we shouldn't put money away for kids to go to college or or anything like that. So Jesus is not telling us that. Jesus is not telling us that we can't enjoy some of the things of this world. Good food, entertainment, sports. Jesus is not telling us that we shouldn't work hard. But... Jesus calls this man a fool. And it seems that there's two reasons why Jesus calls this man a fool. And the first is because this man is nearsighted, meaning that he can only see what is right in front of him. He is, in a sense, blind to the bigger picture. You know, and this Beautiful location. It's almost like all he sees is a tree in front of him, and he's missing these beautiful mountains that are just beyond the tree. For him, more money meant bigger barns, meant greater rest, greater security, greater happiness. In a sense, he turns or he trusts in that which is perishable. He puts his trust in that which fades away while ignoring that which is eternal. That's his fault. Not that he had money, but that he trusted in that money, that he put his hope in that money. The second reason, I believe, why Jesus calls him a fool is because this man is self-centered. He was at the center of his own universe, or so he thought. Nowhere in this parable are we given the indication that he wanted to share his wealth, that he wanted to serve others, that he wanted to help others in need. It was all about him and amassing his own security in order to live a secure life. And so Jesus calls him a fool. You probably know, you've probably heard of this story, but it's a great story about G.K. Chesterton, who was a great writer in the early 20th century, a great Catholic writer. And one day he went to a museum in England and they were having this sort of this uh, religious exhibit of all this different art from different major world religions. And as he was going through these different rooms, so he had, you know, like Eastern religions, you had the uh, Judaism, Islam, Christianity. He said that as he was going through the Eastern religions, so like Buddhism and Hinduism, he said that he noticed that all the people in, in the paintings, so kind of like the saints or the, the sages of those religions, they were all depicted as kind of looking down, looking into themselves. And the colors were kind of dark. And he said that when he came into the section of Christianity, of Christian art, he said all of the saints that were depicted, especially the paintings of Our Lady, they all had their eyes and their, their heads lifted up towards heaven, and that the, the colors were bright, and it was very vibrant and it was very alive. And I think that's such a beautiful understanding of Christianity, that we are called to not be looking in at ourselves, but to be looking out, firstly to God and then to the world. It reminds us that we are not our own ends. You know, we cannot bring about, no matter how hard we try, we cannot bring about our own happiness, our own security by ourselves. Anything, any happiness that we've created by ourselves is temporary, and it just will not last. John Paul II once said, and in some sense this is kind of the crux of his whole beautiful work of theology, he says that in order to find ourselves, we must make a sincere gift of ourselves. What does that mean? If we really want to know who we are, if we really want to live our purpose in life, it's by giving ourselves away, not by sort of tucking in and just looking at myself, just taking care of myself. Yes, we all have needs that are important to tend to, but it's the difference between a life that is enclosed in on oneself and a life that is opened to others. We are not made for our own comfort, for our own security, or even for our own health. And I think sometimes people think the goal in life is just to be comfortable. Or that the goal in life is just to be healthy. Now, certainly there's nothing wrong with being healthy. There's nothing wrong with being comfortable. But when you turn that into the goal, into the end of our lives, We miss literally all of life. You know, the philosophy that says eat, drink, and be merry is a completely narcissistic, shallow, narrow way to live. Why is it narrow? It's completely nearsighted. You know, take care of myself today, but forget about tomorrow. What about our destiny? Meaning that we're supposed to, we're called to live for eternity. This life is so short compared to eternity. And so, the very purpose of our lives is to fall in love with God, who has already fallen in love with us. You know, love is really an exodus out of ourselves. It is a letting go of certain things, including myself. Now, how many of you who are married, I'm sure most of you who are married, had to give up something for the other. For one, you had to give up your family. Right? Doesn't God say to Adam and Eve, you shall leave your mother and father and cling to your wife? You had to give up your family for the other. Maybe you had to give up the place where you grew up. Maybe you had to give up a certain lifestyle, or maybe even a job or a career because of the one that you love. (coughs) Falling in love with another means letting go. You know, when I joined the Friars, I gave up quite a bit. I gave up my family. Obviously it doesn't mean I don't talk to them, but it means I moved away from where I grew up and that for the most part I won't be home with them on holidays and birthdays and things like that. I gave up friends. I gave up career opportunities. I gave up the possibility of marriage and a family. And the reason was is because the one who I was in love with, the one who was drawing me, demanded it of me. But not in a rude or an aggressive way, but because of the very nature of love. The rich fool in this parable is unable to give up himself. Hence, his life becomes a tragedy. He never discovers his purpose because he is unable to give up himself. You know, I think part of the, the good news of the gospel, really the healing news, is that there is someone much greater than I. You know, there's someone much greater than your spouse. You know, it might be hard to believe. But there's someone much greater than the president or some athlete or some celebrity. You know, we don't need to be perfect. We don't need to be the most successful. We don't need to convey the image that I'm the perfect parent or the perfect priest or the perfect student or whatever. We don't need to have our life perfectly together because nobody does. Trust me, after hearing thousands of confessions, I've come to this beautiful realization nobody is perfect. <laughs> so stop trying. <laughs> it gets really annoying. <laughs> Where I live right now, in, I live in Monticello, New York, so it's about two hours uh, north of the city. And I'm living in what's called a house of prayer. And so I'm kind of like, kind of like a part-time hermit, I'm kind of like a part-time preacher. It's a, it's a unique time in my vocation, and it's been extremely beautiful. But every month, for about maybe seven to 10 days, I'll spend in a hermitage that we have on our property in the middle of the woods. So it's just like a little, Cabin in the middle of the woods No TV no flat-screen TV no computer and every month. I spend about 10 days there and it's interesting that When I'm talking about what I'm doing with some people or some friends who are not Christians, they're very interested They're like wow that sounds neat (laughs) They're almost fascinated by it but when I talk to other Christians including some of my own brothers in my own community You know what the number one question they ask is? Don't you get bored? (laughs) And, you know, I can assure you, I've experienced many things in those times of solitude joy, fear, sadness, hope, but never boredom. The reason is, is because when we are not living in and with God, that's when we get bored. But when you're really trying to root yourself in Him, life is anything but boring. You know, we think God is boring. That's the number one thing kids say, and I said it too when I was a kid. But I think the reason why we think that is because it seems like so many people live what I call a sort of a practical Christianity. Meaning, it's almost like, well, I believe in God just in case, you know, just in case this whole thing's true, right? I don't want to go to hell. That's always always the number one reason. And so what do we do? Well, we go to Mass for an hour in a week. Maybe during the week we'll say a few prayers, you know, and then we'll sort of be like, okay, I'm good. I've done my sort of job of being a Christian, and I'm just going to live really however I want, but I've done what I need to do just in case it's actually real just in case Jesus is actually real. then that way, when I die, I'll be like, oh yeah, remember me? I used to go to Mass once a week. And then we're kind of covered. But if that is our understanding of Christianity, if that is our understanding of the Mass, of the Eucharist, of course God is going to be boring. Because it's not God who you're thinking about or talking to. One of the other benefits I have of living where I live is there's a monastery, the place where Michelle stalked me at for a while. <laughs> <laughs> and I actually do go there very regularly because right now they don't have a chaplain. So it's bad for them, it's good for me. It means I get to go there and stay there sometimes for a couple days, even a week, and spend time in a hermitage and then celebrate mass for them. Now, this, this monastery is probably one of the most strictest religious communities in the entire church. They are very similar to the Carthusians, if you're familiar at all with the Carthusians. But basically, the only time they talk is on Sunday. They go for a walk in the woods for about an hour or two. That's the only time they talk. I mean, they might have to talk a little bit during the rest of the week, like, you pass assault, salt, <laughs> you know, or something <laughs> like that. But other than that, they don't talk. They live in strict solitude in the middle of the mountains, in the Catskill Mountain Range in New York. And it's a real pleasure for me to go up there to celebrate Mass with them. Because as I walk out to celebrate Mass with them, I walk out of the sacristy, and I kiss the altar, and I look up at them, and I begin the Mass. Sometimes I'm almost blinded by the light that's coming from them. They are filled they are filled with joy. And they are smiling. And it's literally a light that sometimes that comes from it that almost blinds me, I feel like. They are probably the happiest group of people I've ever met in my life. And these women live completely contrary to everything that the world says you need for a happy life, for a meaningful life, and for a life with purpose. They have nothing. But... They are rich in the things of God. And so they have everything. Now, Obviously that doesn't mean we can all run off and join that monastery. But it's a powerful example of what a life looks like when it's directed towards God. The purpose and the meaning that comes from a life that has lived in union with God. Think about it right now. What are you living for? right now. Where is your passion directed towards? Is it directed towards that which is here today and gone tomorrow? Is it directed towards trying to create your own happiness, your own security, without any thought to the things of God? without any thought to the simple fact that one day you and I will stand before God and we will have nothing to hide behind. That's a very sobering thought for me. One day we will stand before God with nothing to hide behind. Our resume, our friends, they won't be there as we stand before God. St. Francis once said that, what a man is before God, that is what he is, and nothing else. What a man is before God, that is what he is, and nothing else. And so I think, you know, the ultimate question that must guide our life is what does God want, sort of fill in the blank, to look like? What does God want my marriage to look like? What does God want my friendships to look like? What does God want my hobbies or the movies that I watch to look like? You know, sometimes you see these bracelets, um, WWJD, what would Jesus do? And to be honest with you, that's a great question. What would Jesus do? What would Jesus say about my life? Asking this question prevents us from living a life without purpose. Imagine, again, you who are married... Imagine if tonight you go home and all of a sudden your spouse leaves for like an hour and they come back and they've bought a brand new car without telling you. Now, it would probably be the men who would do this. So imagine, ladies, if your husband left tonight and bought a brand new car without telling you. How would you feel when he came home and told you that? You would have permission to hit him. Because it would be completely absurd. And yet, in some ways, that's what we do. We live most of our life with God in the background. You know, we live most of our life um, not consulting God about the things that matter most in our life. You know, and obviously, what does this mean? It means that, obviously, without any doubt, it means I need to be spending time every day. In prayer, It means that I need to be listening to the word of God so that my mind and my heart can be formed according to what God thinks. Because as we mentioned earlier, it's very different than the way we think. When things get tough in our life, stress or fear or anxiety, it seems that there's four places that we turn to for help, For consolation. The first is the refrigerator. (laughs) I guess you all think that's true as well. The second is the internet. The third, closely related to the internet, is the TV. And the fourth is alcohol, substitutes for God. Are any of those things bad or evil? No. Some of them are very good, particularly food. (laughs) But oftentimes they become substitutes for God. That when what we really need is to seek God's will on something, we turn to one of these four things to console us, to make us feel good. I love the story in Exodus after Israel has just come out of Egypt and Moses goes up on the mountain to receive, to receive the law, and Moses is gone for like, I don't know, two days and all of a sudden what happens? The people forget everything that just happened and they say to Aaron, Aaron, we need something to worship. And so what happens? They make this stupid golden calf and they bow down and worship this golden calf and all of a sudden they attribute everything that just happened to them. To this silly idol. We do that with some of these things. We turn, we create these idols. But what all of these substitutes really do is, in the end, they make us lukewarm, they make us anxious, they make us jealous. They make us afraid. They make our hearts cold. Listen to these statistics that I got, I think, from Time Magazine. It says that the average American watches 34 hours of TV a week and spends 23 hours on the Internet each week. Okay, there are 168 hours in a week. Americans spend 57 hours a week on the TV or the internet. That equals one third of our life. If you figure eight hours for sleeping, eight hours for working, we spend the majority of our free time on the TV or on the internet. Imagine if out of those 57 hours, a week, somebody spent two hours praying, two hours reading the scriptures, how different life would look. You know, is it any wonder that we are more restless than ever? Is it any wonder we're so confused as a culture about everything, from marriage to sexuality, to the very purpose of life. Is it any wonder that we don't have time for silence, that we don't have time for prayer? My brothers and sisters, we only get one life. And like that story of that golfer that I shared with in the beginning, let us choose to be passionate about what really matters. Again, it doesn't mean we can't enjoy the things of this world. Of course we can. But we can't allow them to become substitutes for the only God that there is. The psalmist says that the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. Don't be a fool. The very purpose of our life is to discover the greatness, the love, and the mercy of God and to order our lives towards that good. If we do that, I guarantee you, not necessarily an easy life, but a beautiful life. A life that is indeed worth living. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.